This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for May 4th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest on this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly podcast is former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. Governor McAuliffe first began his career in politics at the age of 23, serving as National Finance Director for President Jimmy Carter's re-election campaign. By 2000, he was named Chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And in 2013, he was elected Governor of Virginia. He joins us to talk about the Trump presidency, the 2018 midterm elections, his work on congressional redistricting, and the possibility of a presidential bid in 2020. Governor McAuliffe is the former chair of the Democratic National Committee. As you look ahead to the midterm elections, what's the Democratic message? How do you run against the Republicans and Donald Trump? <laughs> there are a lot of ways to run against Donald Trump. But, I mean, first and fo- foremost is you got to run on the economy. you got to run on jobs, economic empowerment, like what we did in Virginia. You know, when I took office, um, we got unemployment from 5-4 all the way down to 3-6, 200,000 new jobs, 20 billion of new capital. We focused on creating great paying jobs. We're now the number one state in America for cyber, autonomous vehicles, data, data analytics. We totally changed our economy. That's what folks wanted us to do. Uh, Largest investment in K-12 education in Virginia history. Redesigned all of our schools, computational thought process, uh, critical thought process, uh, cybersecurity now taught K through 12. The message of the Democrats is you elect us. We're going to fight for you. We're going to create high well-paying jobs, and lots of them, and create a great economic system, workforce development, credentialing, apprenticeships, and education, and protect the core values. You know, I always consider myself, Steve, as a fiscally conservative pro-business Democrat. I'm socially very progressive. Um, I had the most vetoes of any governor of Virginia history, 120, but the most anti-women, anti-LGBT, anti-environment, anti-voting laws If I were not governor, they would have passed. Virginia would be a different state. We had an HB2 bill that was introduced in committee. You cannot grow. You cannot bring the Apples, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Salesforce to your state if you're discriminating against women. So we ended all that. Virginia today, open and welcoming, booming economy, one of the greatest education systems, put $10 billion worth of transportation projects on the books. It's working. They want elected officials to focus on them, cut the partisanship, work together, get things done. Governor Northam is facing a very different General Assembly. (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) How so? How will this impact his agenda? Well, when I got elected, as you know, and it was a big win. I broke a 44-year trend to get elected. Uh, uh, All three statewides were held by Republicans and They had a big majority in the House of Delegates. When I elected, we swept in, myself, my lieutenant governor, attorney general. But we only had 33 members, uh, Democrats, in the House of Delegates. We picked up one in the midterm two years later. But it was a very conservative Tea Party uh, caucus of the Republicans. But we won 15 seats in 2017 when I was leaving office. Ralph succeeded me. We swept all statewides. We have turned Virginia, which used to be a ruby red state, is now a blue state. It is a progressive state. It is a pro-job state. Because of those changes, all of the things that I had with a legislature that was very Republican, all those horrible bills, they're all gone. You know, they can't see the light of day anymore. So it was a tremendous progress. We picked up as many seats, Steve, in 2017, listen to this, since 1880. 
1980, 1880. 15 new House of Delegates, so it's now 49. And uh, 11 of the 15 were women. Women drove the election. The grassroots drove the election in Virginia. So Ralph's in great shape. I also remind you, when I took office, I inherited a budget. And as you know, Virginia is very peculiar. The outgoing governor does the budget two years for the incoming governor. So I just did it for Ralph for, you know, the December when I left office. But the budget I inherited was a $2.4 billion budget deficit. I am proud to say that working together with the legislature, we ended that. And I left the biggest budget with the most surplus, the most cash reserves we've ever seen in Virginia history. That's what people wanted. We're a different state. When I took office, only 1,300 jobs created in the month of December. We were hit hard by sequestration. But, Steve, we leaned in. I did 35 trade missions. I'm a very pro-trade Democrat. I went to five continents to bring jobs back to Virginia, a record amount, $20 billion, which is about $7 billion more than any governor in Virginia history. I want to talk about trade missions in just a moment, but why is it that Virginia is the only state that does not allow a governor to serve two consecutive terms? You know, a lot of states used to be like that. Then over time, they've ended that. I think Kentucky, like 12 years ago, I think they were the last ones to change there. Before that, Georgia? And Georgia before that. So a lot of you saw it a lot in the southern states, but... You know, if one term is what Thomas Jefferson had in Virginia, well, as you know, we're never going to change it. You know, it will I, never change. I, maybe at some point, you know, I went in, I had, you know, I had done business all over the globe as an international. I'd done projects and continents all over. So I came in with a good background on economic development. I started over 30 companies. So I hit the ground running. So for me, Got in, broke all the records, most vetoes, restored more rights than any governor in the history of America. I hit the boxes. I did what I said I wanted to do. I checked them. Um, But I could see probably, Steve, if you had a magic wand, maybe you could do for every governor one five- or six-year term. I'll be honest with you. I think people spend too long in politics. Uh, That's why I'm working very hard on redistricting with Eric Holder. People get in, they spend too long. It's good to get new blood in, new young people with new, fresh, creative ideas. So I knew it was for, I was fine with it. If I'd had one more, I would have, you know, worked hard to get Medicaid expansion, which is now going to happen with our 15 new Democrats that we have. I would have worked hard on probably the Redskins Stadium. I had a bunch of big projects, which we worked on, which ultimately have now come in. So, you know, maybe one five or six year term for every governor would be a good thing. How does a trade mission work? What's the agenda and how do you approach them? Yeah, well, my v, Department of Economic and my Department of Commerce would put these trips together. I mean, I pe- think people think these are glamorous things. Well, they're not. You know, I hit them hard. Uh, I loved them. So, you know, let's say we're flying to London. We'd get off the plane early in the morning. We would shower at the airport in the lounge, and we would go right to a meeting somewhere. And then generally we would take a hotel room, and people would come in, like take a little conference room, And then 20, 25 different businesses would come in, and I'd make the pitch why I'd come to Virginia and go back and forth. And And what's the pitch? Give us the pitch now. How do you approach it? Oh, my goodness. Well, Virginia, most importantly, great workforce, great education system. You know, last year I was able to recruit Nestle out of California, move their corporate headquarters from California to Virginia. And at the end of the day, I think it was our great K-12, through one of the best in the country. So... What a business wants, Steve, before they're going to move a 
entity to America and to your state. They got to know you're going to have a workforce. That's why we changed our whole workforce. As I say, we had a whole program on credentialing, on apprenticeships. If you go get one of my 166 credentials, the state will pay two-thirds of the cost of it. So I can guarantee a worker, who want, a, a company who wants to come to America, yes, for 20 or 30 or 40 years, Virginia will provide you a dedicated, skilled, knowledgeable workforce. And that's the most important thing. But of course, you know, I had fun with it. Low taxes, business-friendly, the center of America, the Commonwealth, 1607, those three ships, when they came to America, you know, they didn't go to Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, that little rock they got up there. No, no. Came to Jamestown. I go through the whole deal. I talk about my 350 uh, uh, wineries, my 237 craft breweries, our seven varieties of oysters. We've got ocean, Steve. Beautiful miles of ocean. We've got mountains. We've got all the historical sites. You come to Virginia, you drink our wine, you eat our oysters. Virginia's for lovers. I mean, how can you beat that pitch? Let me ask you about transportation issues, whether it's Northern Virginia, Hampton Roads, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago. How does America fix uh, gridlock in our major metropolitan areas? Yeah, and what a problem. You know, now that I'm back in Northern Virginia... And uh, people say, what do you miss being governor? Well, I do, I'll be honest with you, I miss that helicopter. <laughs> I mean, it, I got home, and then my first day I went out in the uh, garage, the back seat of the car, sat the car, didn't go anywhere. So I'm back on the road again. So be careful, everybody, if you see me out there. I'm just getting back at it. So you're driving. Oh, you bet. I'm back at it. Um, slowly, carefully, <laughs> focused, because it's been you know over four years since I've driven. But listen, it is the key. And this was one of our big accomplishments during my term as governor. When I went into office, I inherited some very bad projects, a public-private partnership down in Route 460, where they had spent $300 million, Steve, on a road that not a shovel had gone in the ground. Total waste of money. I got rid of that deal. Our Port of Virginia was on the verge of economic collapse. They weren't meeting their debt covenants. Fast forward four years later, We've changed all that. Our port is back to profitability, doing great. We invested strategically in the port. Dulles Airport here in Northern Virginia, you know, we almost lost United Airlines. I can now talk about it, but, you know, we put $50 million up because when they did the construction there, now the cost of when you land per ticket, you know, is like 10 times higher than other airports. So we have now brought that down. United has agreed to stay. Seven-year new contract. Saved 35,000 jobs. But on the roads... Overall, in my four years, we did about $10 billion worth of projects. Very proud of that. On 66 outside the Beltway, we're building 10 new lanes, $3.2 billion project. Not a penny of state dollars will be used. So you'll have the free lanes like you have now, three on each side, and then two express on each side. But the three free lanes, all that new capacity is being built through a public-private partnership, not a cent of taxpayer money will be used. That's how you have to do it. Now, the president's wrong on his infrastructure program. I wish, I'm disappointed. I talked to the president about this. We should have taken, instead of this gigantic tax cut, which is probably gonna cost $2 trillion, it's not gonna help many folks, I wish we'd taken $2 trillion and rebuild the bridges and roads in this country, because we're at capacity. With the construction I announced in Northern Virginia, with the addition now of all the work we're doing on 66, the additions we did on 95, 395, I'm taking the expressways all the way up to D.C., there is no more asphalt to be built as it relates to state capacity in Northern Virginia. And even with all this new capacity we've built, Steve, it's still gridlock. We've got to get people into multimodal. That's why the Inside the Beltway project 
is going to really enhance the multimodal, getting people out of cars, get them into other modes, because we're at a breaking point. And if we get Amazon, which I hope we do and we should, you're talking 50,000 more cars potentially on the roads in northern Virginia. Um, it's tough. Maryland needs to do their part. You know, you get our beautiful express lanes, and then you get up uh, on um, 495, and then you get to that 193, and it becomes a funnel, and it's just going over the American Legion Bridge. We need new capacity over the Potomac River. How serious is Amazon? I think for all of us, it's very serious. It literally is 50,000 new jobs, but, you know, it's a game changer. It's not only the 50,000 jobs, but think, Steve, the restaurants, the cleaning crews, I mean, everything else that goes with it. I don't think anybody has a clue as to what they're doing. Uh, in the sense that they're keeping it very secret. They're still, I'm not sure they're done with all their site visits around the country. I think we are in a very good position, great education. We have an international airport, which is one of the requirements they wanted. And we have the metro. So Virginia and the region, Maryland and D.C., we've got the workforce, we've got the mass transit, we've got the international capacity. So I think we're in excellent shape to get it. Very strong economy. You know, Virginia's unemployment rate is last month went down to 3.4%. Uh, you know, we're almost at full capacity and full employment in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So, you know, but the good news is if I'm Jeff Bezos, I'm looking, well, my goodness, look at the billion dollars two years ago they put into education in Virginia. They redesigned, they got rid of five SOLs. You know, we had way too many tests, standardized tests. Kids were learning to memorize and teachers were teaching the tests. That's not how you build a intellectually cognitive thought process workforce. So we've changed all that in Virginia. And as I say, we're bringing all these new requirements into schools where you have computational thought process, critical reasoning. That's all. And if I'm Jeff Bezos, boy, I want to go to a state that's really looking at the next 30, 40 years on education and doing what they've done in Virginia. Let's turn to politics. There's a new book out by Stu Eisenstadt looking at President Jimmy Carter, his four years in the White House, essentially saying he was far more consequential than historians initially viewed him. You worked for Jimmy Carter as a fundraiser. Uh, what are your thoughts? I, I've always said that. Uh, I thought, you know, unlucky draws, you know, the Iranian hostage issue. We had uh, high oil prices, the embargo, and all those issues that went on with that. But he was a very smart, very thoughtful president. As Stu Eisenstadt correctly says, he put a lot of pieces in place in the Middle East and other places that we've still reaping the benefits from that. Uh, I started out, you know, <laughs> I was uh, just out of college and went to work for President Carter. Didn't know him at all, but you know, I was going to go to Georgetown Law School. But I thought, what the heck, I might as well go work on a campaign. Should be an awful lot of fun. And I did it and ended up, believe it or not, at the age of 23 being the National Finance Director. Didn't get to interact with Carter. People who are listening here who are young will find this hard to believe. But President Carter did not do any political events in the 1980 campaign. You know, because of the Iranian hostage situation, he had what you call the Rose Garden strategy. So he didn't do any fundraisers. Um, Rosalind, his wife did them, and Walter Mondale and the cabinet. I think people would find that hard to believe that a president did not go out and campaign for himself. But for me, it was a great experience. And you know, he was a great man, and look what he's done in his post-presidency. I mean, spectacular. What a, you know, what a lesson he's just for so many of us to give back. You know, I'm a big believer in community service. I've long thought. I love what Stan McChrystal's doing and talking about how we community service. I have a son in the Marine Corps today, just got back from Iraq. You know, I think everybody in this country, doesn't have to be the military, Steve, 
But there's nothing wrong with every young person given a year or two of their life uh, to community service, let it be a teacher, whatever it may be, to give back. It would make race relations in this country better. It would force everybody to work better together. It would bring rich and poor back working together. And I think the earlier you do that in life, I think it would be better for our country. I mean, certain countries, obviously, like Israel, you know, they've got a three-year for men. I think it's two-year for women, but that's compulsory military service. We don't have to do it. be nice if more people, only half of 1% of our population, serve in the military. I know that your daughter is doing aviation for the Naval Academy, just got out of the Naval Academy, graduated with my son. Um, I just think it's something that we ought to look at. But I think Carter was a real example of what you should do to give back to your communities. When did you first meet Bill Clinton? I first met him right after the Carter campaign. It was Carter had lost. I decided I better go to law school. But I was still in charge of the fundraising for the Democratic National Committee. And I got a call that this young former governor, remember he was the youngest governor elected and the youngest former, he got beat by Bill White in 1980. And he was coming up to Maryland. Harry Hughes was the governor. They had a governor's conference up there. And he and Hillary came up and they wanted to meet with me. You know why? He wanted to run for chairman of the Democratic National Committee in 1980. And I was in charge of funding. So he wanted to know, you know, what the finances, what, how do you do it and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we hit it off, you know, it was a long relationship of 35 years. Uh, I like to joke, most expensive friend I've ever met. Love him dearly. But, you know, I've done all my work for the Clintons, pro bono. But uh, I knew at that point, Steve, he was, this guy was going somewhere. And luckily he didn't run for the Democratic National Committee chair. That would have been a mistake? Well, he went back and ran and beat White and became uh, governor of Arkansas. But, you know, we've had a lot of interesting people try and run for DNC chair. Nancy Pelosi, George Mitchell, Bill Clinton. Um, you know, worked for some, some it hasn't. You don't get do-overs in life, but if you could go back to 2016 and have the Hillary Clinton campaign do one thing differently. 2016, yeah. What would you have advised the campaign to yeah. do? They were talking, and Hillary was on the road talking on the economy, but I never saw that to the megaphone effect through their paid advertising. I don't think their paid advertising connected to the people they needed to connect to and talk about jobs, economic empowerment. They did not. I didn't think the campaign had done that. We did that in Virginia. In fact, I told Hillary, don't come to Virginia. I've got it covered. I told her that in January of 2016. I told her in January we'd win by 200,000. We won by 210,000. Uh, why? Because people were happy in Virginia. We focused. I mean, every day people would run for me. They, yeah. Oh, my goodness, i got to hear about that new Virginia economy one more time. But it was important, and it was critical. And I wish the campaign, and she had done it on the road during her speeches, but it never got translated into the broader spectrum. And for whatever reason, a lot of people came out of that campaign thinking that Trump would have been better for them on the economy. And we never should have lost the economic argument, ever, 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 ever. I mean, and look at now as, you know, the deficits have soared and issues have gone on. When Bill Clinton became president, remember, he had a huge deficit and a recession he had to deal with. When President Obama came in office, I mean, you got to remember, Steve, our economy in the world, but here in America was on a fiscal cliff. It was about to, the entire economy was about to crumble. And he got to work and he fixed that. And with this gigantic look at the trade deficit we had last month, you know, we're going to have to do it again. Governor McAuliffe, what do you think of President Trump? 
How would you assess the first 15 months? I'm disappointed. I honestly thought, and I'd known him, as I say, for 20 years. Um, remember, he was a Democrat his whole life. I mean, he was a donor and gave me money when I ran for governor. And you He know, did? Oh, sure. He gave me $25,000 when I first ran in 2009. He was a Democrat his whole life. But put the partisan, put Democrat or Republican aside for a minute. I would have thought and hoped, and, and, and I wanted to work with him. I was not only governor, but I was chairman of the governors. I was chairman of the National Governors Association. So on behalf of all of us, we want to work with a new administration. If you're going to work with us, we want all of us. I can tell you this as governor and mayors. We want infrastructure. Willing to work with you. But it, it hasn't panned out, and he's been a disappointment. I mean, forget the tweets and all of this attacking people. Put that all aside. We haven't gotten anything done uh, on infrastructure. It's horrible what he's done on health care. We all agreed that the ACA needed to be fixed and amended and added to. Everybody was in agreement. But what they have now done, you know, getting rid of the individual mandate and then the cost sharing, uh, premiums are skyrocketing all over the country. And so he's, I, his goal, I guess, was to ruin Obamacare. He's certainly going that way, but he's not putting it on the table to give people health care. People just want basic health coverage in this country. So I'm very disappointed what he's done on health care. I'm very disappointed he hasn't done anything on infrastructure. Listen, I love tax cuts. I come from a very low-tax state. But that tax cut, as you know, will benefit the wealthiest in the corporations. It's not going to do anything for the average Joe working out there every single day, slugging it out, trying to you know make ends meet and take care of their family, which is unfortunate. And it's driven, as you know, it's going to take our debt up by $2 trillion. There's a trillion and a half, and then you take the debt on it. You know, we're adding a lot of debt. And the unfortunate thing for our federal government, unlike our state government, I'm not allowed to have debt as governor. I have to have balanced budgets. Most governors do. We have to live within our means. And when I inherited, as I say, when I came into office for a budget I didn't put together of $2.4 billion, I didn't sit and blame anybody else or the Republican legislature who passed it. I didn't. I said, let's get to work. And we worked in a bipartisan way and came up with never cut any K-12. That was the one rule I had. But it's just unfortunate we have to balance budgets. The federal government is just incapable. I am, you know, I'm not a fan of what's going on. I haven't been a fan in Congress for a while. They don't work together. They've all been pushed to their corners. They don't come together. Compromise, you know, Steve, is not a bad word. You have to do it in business. So how do you fix that? How do you end what many call the tribalism between the Democrats and Republicans? And listen, I, I did it in Virginia. Now, we disagreed on the social issues, as I talked about, and I stopped all that horrible social legislation. But on economic development, transportation, education funding, I got everything I wanted from the Republican, very Republican legislature. Why? They were good ideas, and let's work together. It's what we've always historically done in Virginia. But what's happened in this country, Steve, and that's why I'm working on this redistricting, and, and in fairness, pox on both houses. This isn't just one party. But what happened in 2011 with the redistricting, Uh, is they built themselves a permanent majority to the point that in 2016, only 7% of congressional races had a general election. Seven. That means 93% of members of Congress did not have a competitive general election. So what happens in this country is it polarizes. The only way you can lose an election is if you lose in your primary. It pushes you way right and it pushes you way left. And the middle is gone. 
And it's unfortunate because you got to come to the middle on many different issues if you're going to have success. So that's why I'm working on redistricting. If I had my druthers and I had the magic wand, I would have independent, nonpartisan commissions draw lines in all 50 states. Like Iowa. Like California has done it. I think five or six states have now done it. Get it where competition's back. 50-50. Now, you're not going to get 50, but closer to 50-50. If you have a general election, Steve, you are going to work hard as a member of Congress. If you don't, just like in business, if you don't have competition, you're not going to be as sharp. You're not going to hustle as much as you need to. And that's what's happened to this country. We've got to end partisan gerrymandering. It has destroyed democracy in this country. And I'm, I've been fighting on this topic for a long time. We need nonpartisan, independent. Let's get competition. Politicians in America today pick their voters. Voters don't pick politicians. They draw those lines. You've seen them with the snakes. And, you know, as I say, we had one district. you got to be contiguous, as you know, under law. We had one district, Bobby Scott's in Virginia, that was only contiguous during low tide. <laughs> Two final political questions. You, <laughs> you told, think that's right? Come on. <laughs> you told CBS News that if you ran in 2020, you would beat Donald Trump. Walk us through the process that you would take if you decide to run in 2020. What decision-making process does Terry McAuliffe go through? Well, first of all, anybody uh, who gets asked a question, anybody who comes up to you and says, if you're going to do something, well, of course you think you're going to win. I get out of bed, Steve, every day. What I'm going to do, I want to be successful. And so you got to shoot for the—I shoot for the moon every day. You did, and maybe you don't get there, but you end up with some stars, right? If you don't, you're going to be in the same place you were when you got out of bed that morning. So I don't know, honestly, what I'm going to do in 2020. I'm working hard on redistricting. I'm helping our 36 governors. But whoever runs, let's just talk. And the issues that we need as a country is to bring folks back together again. As you mentioned, it, this tribal, it's got to stop. we got to work together because I worry. I worry at night. I worry about China. Now that President Xi has a lifetime term, I worry about what China, you look at, they've traveled the globe. They're investing all over. You travel to Africa or anywhere today, they are putting a marker. They're thinking long term. That's why I hate to see President uh, Trump on this trade, uh, on these tariffs, because we're going to get hit back. And the people who voted for Trump, those mom and pops who are working their heart out every day, they're going to pay for for it. So we need someone in 2020 first and foremost, who is going to lay out an economic agenda that really benefits everybody. It focuses on those progressive values of treating everybody with dignity and respect. You know, I'm appalled at the language he uses, the, the, the way he attacks individuals and attacks women. and talk. It, it, the, the whole thing is unseemly. We're the greatest nation on earth. You know, I, get, I do. I sing the Star Spangled Banner in the morning. I love it. I'm the proud son of a World War II Army captain, the proud father of lieutenant of the Marine Corps. We are the greatest nation on earth. Men and women are fighting right now, dying for our right to vote, our freedoms that we have in this country. And the president of the United States has got to be acting like president. And his, you know, he attacked all those countries. I won't even mention on the radio what he called those. We got to stop all that. So I think the campaign, whoever it will be in 2020, it's going to be a values-based campaign. Uh, for people, talking about how everybody benefits in the economy, everybody gets treated with dignity, everybody gets treated with respect, and America is the greatest nation. I never like make America great again, because we are great. Can it be better? Yes. But as someone who has done business and as governor has done business all over the world, let me tell you, when you land, when I land at Dulles International Airport, there is nothing, Steve, like coming back to America. Nothing. 
And Trump's got to knock off all stuff. And we need dignity back in the White House. This, it's like romper room over there. It's disgraceful. Um, the next president shouldn't have any of his kids working in the White House. We've got to forget all that kind of stuff. Get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. But, you know, you see the reports out today where his chief of staff supposedly called him an idiot. His, his secretary of state supposedly called him a moron. I mean, what is going on? I've never seen anything like this in all my years. So is it safe to say that you're at least thinking about it? I wouldn't rule it out, but honestly, you're asking me, I'm really working hard on 18, and I think for all the people who may potentially do it, they probably think about it, but I'm not putting any time or effort into it at this point. I think after 18, I think beginning of 19, people are going to begin to have to make that decision. But before you make decision, you know, it's a hard decision. You know, Steve, you've been out on that trail. This is a tough, tough business. The first consideration always for me is my family. I have five children. I still have two in high school that I'm dealing with. I have a freshman in high school. And for me, the most important thing is the family and and what they want me to do. And that would be before I'd even entertain such a thing. I'd have have to have a conversation with my whole family because as a father, your first responsibility is to your children and your wife. And Dorothy and I are going on our 30th wedding anniversary this October. But, you know, let's talk after 18. I think that's a fair statement. But you know, people always say, you know, what do you want to do? Listen, Steve, I, you know, I'd love to be Pope. I'd love to be the backup quarterback, uh, you know, for Tom Brady. And there are a lot of things in life I'd love to do. But the issue is, can you go in? Can you make a difference? I think the model we did in Virginia, bringing people together, as I said, a very Republican legislature. I got 90 percent of what I wanted out of my legislature. Extraordinary amount. We rebuilt our state. We did it together. We had differences, and of course you're going to have differences, and our economy is booming today. I took over an economy that was wrecked, that was big deficits, and sequestration was really hurting Virginia with the largest naval base in the world and all the military we have. I left When I left office, booming economy, new industries, great education system, great transportation. We didn't get Medicaid, so I went and did the governor's access plan. I put money in the state budget. So we're a better place today, and everybody— Dignity and respect. Everybody, I don't care who you are. And I went into the school districts in Petersburg and Norfolk that really needed extra help. These kids deserve a shot at life, and they deserve the best teachers. They shouldn't have second-class facilities. And we went and did that for them. Last question. We are five and a half months before the midterm elections, but what's your general prediction? What do you think is going to happen? I feel pretty confident. Listen, anything can happen. I would first say I wish the election were today. It's not. But I feel pretty confident saying I think we're going to win the House uh, of Representatives. I think anywhere from 25 to 45 seats I think is in play today. There are a lot more seats competitive, but you can't fund all those. But I think 25 to 45. The Senate, we only need two. It's uh, it's a trickier map for us. We do have a lot of Democrats up in those states that President Trump has won. Uh, you know, we've got competitive races and incumbents in Florida and and, and Heidi, as you know, and Joe Manchin and Claire and all that. But, you know, it's possible in the Senate. But the thing I'm really also focused on are these governors. You know, we're down to 16, Stephen. Why are they important? Because in 2021, when the redistricting maps, Republicans control two-thirds of the state legislative chambers. Only one person can stop, you know, and they'll draw, obviously, map, gerrymandered maps to protect and increase their 
majorities is what they would like to do. One person can stop that. That's a, that's a governor. In 35 states, the governor has the right to veto that map. And when they do that, it then goes basically to an independent arbiter to come up with fair lines. So I'm working hard. We need to get up from that 16. I feel very confident today we're going to have pickups in Maine and in Michigan and Illinois and Nevada and New Mexico. I think those five we look great in. But really competitive races in Florida and Ohio in Tennessee South Carolina, we have a competitive. So we have real opportunities in the governors because they will be sitting there, Steve. Those elected this November will be sitting in the executive mansions in 2021 dealing with gerrymandered maps. And if the things that we care about, and the last thing I'll say, with Congress broken and all the nothing really happens up there, a lot of the rollback on these issues, these progressive issues that I talk about and protecting women's rights and so forth, those rollbacks are happening at the states. That's happening today. 120 bills I vetoed. Every year I, be, I vetoed a bill that would have shut all of our women's clinics, all of our women's health clinics down. Now, I got to tell you, Steve, that's, that's bad as a governor because for many women, especially uh, those that need indigent care, this is the only place they have to go. But what a message you're sending to see women CEOs. Why would you go to Virginia if they're behaving like that? As I say, we had HB2-like bills. I had to veto a bill that, you know, basically you could sell machine guns out of gun stores. I mean, just awful stuff. That's all gone. So these governors, thank goodness they're there because they are literally the last line of defense. I promised women I would be a brick wall to protect their rights. And you remember we had horrible legislation, which I won't even mention on the radio, uh, in Virginia, as you know, before I became governor. And we're just not going to tolerate that anymore. Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, the former chair of the Democratic National Committee, longtime friend of the Clintons. Thanks for being with us here in the C-SPAN Radio Studios. And Jimmy Carter. He's in the news today. And thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.